Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're talking about that bridge between working with the hospital system and still having your voice heard, still having your preferences honored without being labeled the difficult person. So to have this conversation, I have midwife Chloe Lubel. She is a graduate of Yale School of Nursing in 2014 and started her midwifery journey at Bellevue Hospital in New York, where she learned to provide midwifery care in a large industrial medical system. In 2017, she began working with Central Park Midwifery, a small private practice that supports births at Mount Sinai West. And after the home birth of her daughter, she began dreaming about making the transition to home birth. And finally, Cosmos Midwifery was recently born. She's now a home birth midwife. So she's had, so Chloe's had the experience of working in very big hospitals, smaller hospitals, and to help navigate and negotiate the needs of the hospital and their protocols and their rules and the very important needs of the birthing person and how to find that bridge and how to still very much have the birth that is respected and nothing's happening without your consent. So it's a really interesting conversation. I think you're going to enjoy that. Before we get to that, just a shout out of a thanks to everyone that has continued to show up for our online classes. We pivoted as everyone did when this pandemic started to an online structure. And it's really grown and it's really beautiful. And we now are working with people from all around the world. It's interesting because our classes happen at the same time every day, 10 a.m. Eastern time. And we have people that sign up for the class, but I know they're not going to show up because they're in another part of the country or even part of the world and they watch the re-release. So they're still part of the community, even when they're not there. And it's, it's really beautiful that we can expand in that way. So thank you for those that continue to support and learn about us and, and add your energy to our community and our, and our, in our circle. So thank you. Also, I want to thank those that are leaving ratings and reviews for the podcast. It's helping people find us. So if you haven't done that, head over to where you listen to your podcast from, leave a rating and review. Also, we've got a ton of our workshops online. So if you are looking for your childbirth education class, you're caring for a newborn, you're breastfeeding, even your infant safety CPR, we've got that. Check that out at prenatalyogacenter.com. And then lastly, our teacher training is thriving. It is so exciting that we moved it online and it is just so robust and so great. So we are full for September and October and we are about halfway full for our November and December. And Caprice and I just actually had a meeting earlier today and until we are able to be face-to-face, we are just going to keep putting it online. It's a great way for people again from outside the area to still study with us and we just love hearing the stories and the information from other parts of the country. It just leads to really rich conversations. So check that out, prenatalyogacenter.com. It's our 85-hour prenatal yoga teacher training. And for those that don't want to commit to a full teacher training, don't forget we've got our smaller online courses, Who's Afraid the Pregnant Yogi and Teaching the Postnatal Student. 
So I think that's it. Those are the announcements. That's the housekeeping. So we're going to take a super quick break and we come back. Please enjoy this very important conversation with Chloe. Hi, Chloe. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's great to get a chance to talk. I know. I'm really excited. So as I was saying before we started, I want to just let the community know we happen to be recording this. There's a tropical storm outside. We may lose power. <laughs> you may you may hear crashes. I literally look out my window and there's branches, big branches from some my trees rolling down the street. So let's just see. Hopefully nothing comes in the house or in the window. <laughs> let's just oh see goodness. how this yeah. rolls. <laughs> All right, so I like being transparent. All right, so I'm really excited to speak with you. Your the work you do on Instagram and the work you do as a midwife is really interesting to me, and I'm so glad that we have a chance to talk. So I guess I've had a chance to research a bit about you. I've known a lot about um, the midwifery practice which you just left. I've actually done some births a doula with them. I don't think I ever was with you. Maybe who knows? <laughs> um, I don't remember, me- but. It's been a while. I haven't done, I haven't attended births in a while. I kind of miss it. I don't miss the hours, but I miss the experience. Mm. Um, But if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the birth world and and midwifery. Yeah, I um, went to college so that I could write the next great American novel uh, and then got there and realized that there was something big missing. Um, I'd had doulas in my life through high school and um, the time before I went to college that I knew and loved hearing their stories. And so I got interested in birth work through um, doing doula work and it just sort of progressed from there. I, I realized only in being a midwife exactly why I wanted to be a midwife, which is that it is an amazing hands-on way to make a difference in people's lives every day. And I get to go to work every day and welcome joy and sadness and help people through some of the most vulnerable and intimate moments of their life. And, And I get to do that in a way that I know makes a difference for them. It really does. I have a special place in my heart for midwives. Having worked with midwives as a doula and a birthing person, there is something about the care and the attention and the space that midwives give and they just the way they hold the space. It's it's a very special person that can take that role. So thank you for doing that for our community. I guess I want to also talk about your approach to midwifery and the relationship you cultivate with your clients. From what I've seen of midwives, it's and I'm not trying to put um, OBs in any poor light, but it is a different even time, like the time of appointments. Mm -hmm. I remember my midwife would literally give me a 45 minute appointment where statistically the more traditional obstetricians, it's like a six or seven minute. So can you tell me a little bit about your approach and the relationship you cultivate? I believe very strongly in midwifery as education. While I am a guide in this journey, I am by no means the leader. And cultivating that relationship, as you say, it really takes time and it takes energy. And I want my clients to have all of the information they need in order to make the right decisions for themselves and their family 
Um, and so I actually take about an hour with each of my clients, probably more because I'm terrible at time management. Um, and, and every time I see them, we're talking through how things are going with them, how things are going with their pregnancy, with their partner. Are they moving? What's happening at work? And this way we can really create a relationship where they know me and they trust me and they know that in the situation that something were not to go as planned, my recommendations in that moment would be entirely based on my best interest for them uh, rather than rather than my need to get home to a soccer game or whatever the situation might be. Mm -hmm. From that knowledge, have you, can you think about times where something started to go a bit astray and you're like, okay, I've talked to this person. I know this, I know how to help. Yes. Well, I mean, in a, in a very simple example is that through getting to know my clients over the course of a pregnancy, I get to know what works best for them. Um, so for some people, honestly, it's the tough love approach for other people. They need time, they need space. Um, and what ends up happening is that in the middle of labor, if they are panicking, I know, okay, this person is going to react better to me saying you know, ju you just have to keep going. There's no other choice versus mm -hmm. it's okay. Take your time. You know, we don't have to move that fast, a softer, gentler approach. Um, and in my own life, when I was pregnant, my midwives who had been working with a friend of mine um, and treating her in very, one very specific way, ended up treating me entirely differently. And I, they ended up giving me the tough love, you know, grumpy mama kind of approach, <laughs> which I had no idea that I needed. But when I said to them at one of the very first visits, I said, well, but what if it's too painful? What if I just can't do this? And one of my midwives said, what makes you think you're so special? Everyone has been able to do this in the past, and that worked perfectly for me. So getting to know someone and figuring out how you can calm their fears is not going to be a one-size-fits-all um, answer. That's I really respect that approach, and I think it's something that takes a lot of sensitivity to be aware of, and also to note from person to person, you know, what works and what doesn't. So I, I really enjoy hearing that you do take note of that, and I, I would love to see that approach and that communication happen across the board. So I, I reached out because I was reading something you wrote on one of your Facebook, not Facebook, Instagram, and it was it's just kind of the way you talked about it, kind of crossed the bridge between being, when you were working before you were a home birth midwife, being in the hospital setting and having that sensitivity you just talked about, being you know on that personnel and then also greeting and being with the, the birthing person. And there tends to be sometimes 
how it's the best way to say it. Sometimes the birthing person shows up a bit on guard, like like they have to defend mm. their birth preferences, and then the hospital almost or the medical institutions like the the en- guarding against the enemy. And you see, <laughs> I mean, and that, yeah. maybe I'm broad strokes, um, but because you have this idea of like you do see the sensitivity, and we don't want to just black and white like hospital bad birthing person needs defending, mm-hmm. but like you know, but there, there is some truth to that. So from your experience experience working in the hospital setting, why do you think that's happening and how can we not have that happen and get past mm. that? Is that making sense what I'm asking? Yeah. Well, I think the absolute most important part is finding a provider that you trust in this exact way, a provider that you know will have your best interests at heart no matter what. And so when it comes time for them to say, you know what, I think we really need to start some Pitocin, you know that it's because they care and they are compassionate and they've thought through every single possible other option. And you don't have to be on guard in that situation. You trust them and you let them be the ones navigating the hospital for you and navigating any of the policies and procedures that are considered routine. Um, and you don't completely give up your, your agency to them, but you allow them to do the heavy lifting. And that way, when you're in the middle of labor, you don't have to be thinking, you know, why are they think, saying this? Are you, is this absolutely the right decision it lets you just focus on turning inward and checking in with yourself and your intuition. Do you think that sometimes hospital protocol may override the personal experience of the person so that the care provider may, how do I say this, that offending anyone sometimes, <laughs> and again, I'm saying this from having attended a, a fair amount of births. I mm. feel like, sometimes it's routine protocol as opposed to the individual's necessity for that protocol. Um, the one I'm thinking in mind is like vaginal exams. That keeps popping into my head. Like certain timing, oh, it's been two hours, it's been three hours. Like it's so different from provider to provider. And some are pretty regimented. Some are more like, oh, it looks like, you know, from the sounds you're making, the way you're moving, we don't really need to check yet. Or, oh, it looks like from the sounds you're making this, like how you're moving, there's been great, you know, strides. So how does, how do we differentiate between protocols and what the individual needs? This is, this is the root of the issue. Um, Hospital (laughs) protocols have been put into place in a way that protects the hospital and also from their point of view, protects the patient. But it considers one patient in one exact way and um, doesn't understand the breadth of difference between labors. We, it really depends on the way that each provider was trained, how they are going to feel comfortable with um, listening and watching someone uh, in labor and making a, a decision based on the way that someone looks and sounds versus getting their own fingers in there and figuring out the 
the concrete data, you know, what is the cervix doing? Um, even though we know that what the cervix is doing right now is only a picture of what the cervix is doing right now. It doesn't tell us what's going to happen in the next five, 10, 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in with, with something like cervical exams or any kind of intervention, um, Rather, with any kind of test or exam, I encourage everyone to, I encourage providers to think this through as well as uh, patients, clients. Um, What is this exam going to tell me? Do I want this information? How will this information change how we manage my labor? Um, and as a provider, I, who has a lot of experience in hospitals and working in a hospital system, I sometimes have this feeling that I call itchy fingers, where I just really <laughs> want to just get my fingers in there and figure it out. What's going on? Um, but checking back in with myself, I say, I say this to myself over and over again, is this information going to change the outcomes? And in a lot of hospitals, you see routine cervical exams every four hours in early labor and every two hours in active labor. Uh, And it doesn't matter. You know, it's not going to change anything if we see, you know, if someone's being induced and they're on Pitocin and we check them at 4 p.m. and they're 6, when we check them at 6 p.m., doesn't matter because it's not going to change what we do. If they're seven centimeters, you know, it doesn't make a difference because we're just going to keep going with the Pitocin. If they're the same, if they're still six centimeters, again, we're just going to keep going with the Pitocin. So um, that's, that's one moment at which you could say, you know what, actually this isn't useful information and as a client, you could decline easily. I was just talking to someone or maybe someone was talking to me about uh, one of their clients. This was a doula. Um, one of their clients just kept saying in a very nice, sweet tone of voice, not that you have to be sweet by any means, but this worked <laughs> for her. Um, anytime someone came in to do something, she would say, oh, no, thank you. And the nurse would come in to do a cervical exam because in this hospital it was nurses doing cervical exams and then the doctors would just come in at the end. The nurse would come in to do a cervical exam and she would say, oh, no, thank you. And they'd say, well, you know, we really need to. And she said, oh, it's okay, no, thank you. Just over and over again. And, you know, eventually she had her baby and no one had to do cervical exams for her. But that's a situation like what you're talking about where she had to really be on guard um, and... You know, ideally, she would have had a provider who was the one making the decisions about when the cervical exams would be um, and thinking through is this useful information or not ahead of time for her. So she didn't have to be doing that. That's exactly the type of thing I was thinking. Like, it's great that she was able to say it. It's unfortunate she had to be in that part of her mind during her labor. It's also nice that the 
the nurse didn't push against this person because I could, you know, sometimes that could happen. So it's nice that they were able to find a collaboration, which we're going to take a super quick break. When we come back, I do want to start to ask about how to form a collaboration between the birthing person, the institution, and the care provider so that there's trust as opposed to distrust. We'll be right back. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft. Made with Tencel, it's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Okay, we're back. So... As we're just saying, we the situation you mentioned, we had the nurse was receptive to the birthing person saying, no, thank you, which I think is great. But how do we create this relationship? And it's kind of a, a three-person dance. We've got the birthing person, we have the institution, and we have the care provider. So all, the whole situation has to work together. How can there be more of a collaborative and trusting relationship? I mean, I wish I had a, a quick and easy answer to that. That would solve a lot of uh, situations if I did. Um, but I think it does come down to a couple things. One is the expectations, needs, and desires of the birthing person. Uh, that's the place to start. So... If I know that above all else, I do not want cervical exams, since that's what we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, then I need to figure out how important that is to me. Uh, I need to have the conversation ahead of time with my provider and make it very clear to them that that's very important to me. And I need to Um, ask about what the hospital policies are. And it's important to remember in that conversation that policies are not law. Um, You can always accept or decline a recommendation, even if it's the policy. Um, So, for example, at one of the hospitals I used to work at, there was the policy that as soon as your water was broken, you couldn't go home again. So even if you came in and you were one centimeter and your water was broken, you couldn't, as, as the nurses would say, Oh, you can't go home again. Um, the nurses and providers, everybody said it in that way. And that makes it sound like it's law. Like the police are going to come after you if you leave. And that's not true. Um, that's what they hope will happen is that you'll stay and be induced. And they might have very good reasons for that. Um, and after hearing their reasons, you may agree and, and want to, to stay and be induced. Um, but you can always say, actually, I'm going to leave. And you may have to sign um, a form that's called an AMA against medical advice form and leave anyway. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize that they can do that. I saw that once with a VBAC that she was told she could have a VBAC and then one labor was slowly starting. They're like, well, it doesn't look like it's working. She's like, no, I really want to try this. And so she had to sign that. Right. And sometimes they will threaten you that if you sign out against medical advice, your insurance will not cover the cost of the evaluation and triage or the admission. And that turns out to be something that that people in hospitals truly believe, but is actually just a a myth gone wild. Um, And there's a lot of research that's been done that looks into reasons why insurance did not cover uh, hospitalizations and it had nothing to do with people signing out against medical advice. Oh, well, that's good to know. So if someone has put some thought into their birth preferences and they're walking in, they're like, okay, I really want my voice to be heard. I really want my preferences to be honored. How do they do so without being labeled? And I, when I wrote this question, I have in in quotes, the difficult person. It's so hard to, to figure that out. Um, I think there, well, first I have to say that it doesn't matter if you're the difficult person. It sucks because then you have to be even more on guard than normal, but it really, you know, if you're labeled the difficult person, then fine, be difficult and be the one saying, you know, I don't care what you say, I will not have a C-section or whatever it is. Um, there's of course a double-edged sword there in that the coercion comes on a lot stronger in that scenario. And also, um, there are certain people in particular, black and indigenous people of color who are more likely to have very negative consequences from being labeled the difficult person. Um, so as much as you can, I think it's good to just play dumb. Um, and to do that, what do you mean by, by that? just <laughs> smiling and nodding. Uh, I, my mom used to say, just be nice and stupid. Um, <laughs> whenever whenever I needed something from someone who didn't want to give it to me. So you just, if they say, you know, okay, we have to do a cervical exam now. You say, why? And they try to explain it and you say, why? And they try to explain that. And, and you can sort of, you know, act like a four-year-old who just discovered the question why and keep going and, they will talk themselves out of it when you, with you just being a polite, smiling, and confused person. Um, and I know this has happened to me before with, with clients, whether they meant to do it or not. Um, when I said, well, you know, I think we should probably do X, Y, Z now. And they said, why? You know, are there other options? And I sort of... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I guess actually, yeah, there are other options. They're just not my go-to and these are why, and this is why. And, and they, you know, if they just keep being a smiling, polite 
reflective wall, I will continue to talk myself out of my original recommendation. That's really, that's really good advice. I like that. So from being at births, both at, for home birth and in the hospital, what are the sticking points you typically see people come in with? I think like, you know, people, the majority of people are like, I'd like to avoid a C-section. What are the other ones that you do see some, I don't want to use the word confrontation. Maybe um, we'll use the word discussion (laughs) when the idea is brought Mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm not sure exactly what the most common things are. Um, a lot of people want, actually, I think it's really different from one clientele to another. So a lot of the people that I was working with in, um, in the public hospital I worked with, their priority was that they did not want an epidural. Um, And the people in my more recent uh, practice was that they did not want any intervention, in particular uh, Pitocin or IVs. Um, And I think the issue with having a birth plan that says I do not want a C-section or I do not want Pitocin is that sometimes that's the right choice, whether Mm -hmm. you want it or not. Um, Mm -hmm. That's why we have these options. They're excellent interventions, excellent tools to have at our fingertips. We are reactive about them because they are hugely overused. But if we can be in a situation where we know that they will be used only as needed. We don't have to be as reactive and defensive. Um, But what I think ends up being the better way, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, rather than having a birth plan that says, you know, don't break my water unless medically necessary. I think it makes sense to have a, communication plan because maybe someone will walk into the room and say it's medically necessary to break your water now well you really didn't want your water broken so what are you going to do in this scenario um in this scenario if you have a communication plan in place you will have thought through how you want that decision making process to go do you want your doula to step up and say you know please give us 10 minutes to think this over. Do you want your partner to go through the brain acronym and, and ask the questions, you know, do I have time? Does my baby have time? Etc. Do you want to, do you want to have thought through possible alternatives ahead of time? Um, and bring those out. So if someone comes in and says, we should break your water, if you have, I don't know, maybe you even have this written down, instead of breaking water, let's try. And then you have two other options and say, you can say in response, can we try this option? Can we try that option? Um, This is the way that you end up 
navigating these decision-making moments in a way that feels um, supportive and non-traumatizing so that you feel like you're the one who was able to make the decision rather than just having something that you did not want pushed on you. Absolutely. It makes me think, as you were saying, of two things. One, I remember there was a study done um, a while ago. It actually had to do with more induction, that when the birthing person was involved with the decision-making, that even if it didn't necessarily go as they had foreseen, because, you know, when does birth go exactly as we envisioned? (laughs) When they were involved in that, there was conversation, there was communication, then the outcome, they felt more satisfied by the experience, even if the outcome was different than the original intent. And then I also just did a podcast with Dr. Neil Shaw. Um, We talked about the team birth project and he was saying the main thing with the success of that was about the communication. And he said, it was so simple. It's like, we brought, we have a whiteboard, everyone's names on the whiteboard, the desires, the preferences are on the whiteboard. So it's clear from the beginning of how, what the ideas are. And then when things have to deviate, there's conversation. He's like, it's just about communication communication. And you totally hit on that too. So, so then I guess that goes back to the very first step of picking a care provider that you feel you can communicate with. So this is, you know, weeks, months before they're having their baby, I guess it's part of the, the step one, but if they got to where they are without that communication, I guess that's where you need the birth team to really step in and help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, doulas, are magic um and everybody should have a doula whether you have a midwife or an ob or you know a family practice doc it doesn't matter who your provider is i strongly encourage having a doula if you don't have the finances to pay a doula and there's not an option of a a doula in training um or someone who does low or no cost births um have a partner who really, a a birth partner, and that doesn't mean an intimate partner, that could be a friend, a sister, um, auntie, anyone, um, who's really going to study up on birth, who's going to come with you to the childbirth ed class, who's going to read the birth partner, um, read all of the important books, and really learn how to advocate for you. And that's what you're paying for in a doula is someone who knows how to advocate, who knows birth, and who can just be there to be your support person since they're not a medical person. They're not thinking about the baby. I mean, they are, of course, thinking about the baby's heart rate. It's not their mean, responsibility. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And they're, they're not responsible for the course of the labor or the, the health of you or the baby. And In not having to have that be their responsibility, they are able to focus 100% on you and what you need in that moment. Um, So no matter what the, no matter who you're working with as a provider, whether you love them and communicate perfectly with them and are planning a, an unmedicated home birth in the stream out back, you know, you still need a doula. 
I think so, but I'm a little bit biased, <laughs> but yay, do this. So one of the things I saw that you talked about also online about the rights of the birthing person, can you talk about what rights the birthing person has if they're not being heard or respected? What things can be done or not done without their consent? Um, nothing can be done without their consent. <laughs> I like that you said that because I have seen things done without consent. Mm, and so I'm glad yes. that you highlighted nothing should be done without their consent. It's, it, I mean, now it's, you can say that and then many things are done in any case. Like you say, like where I see, I see tons of non-consensual um, or coercive care all the time. Um, the, just because something is your right does not mean that that's what, um, what is going to happen. There is the one scenario in which something can be done against your consent is a scenario in which the provider and the hospital team that you're working with feel so strongly that you are endangering your life or the life of your child, that they can bring the case in front of their like ethical review board, go to court and get a court order to, uh, to do whatever health care act needs, or they believe need do needs doing. Um, and that is a very scary thing that happens very rarely um, and is sort of an indicator for many issues in our reproductive and legal systems. Um, and by and large, you do not need to worry about that happening. But uh, there should never, there should never be a point at which something is happening that you have not consented to. The one scenario that popped into my mind, again, th- I know things can happen quickly. I spe- you know, birth can be kind of smooth sailing and then all of a sudden something quickly goes awry. I was at a birth years ago that it was actually, it might've been with your former midwifery practice years and years and years ago and things were going swimmingly and then it wasn't. And so the midwife stepped aside and it must've been the attendant came in, I think with a resident and they were doing, they were like, okay, we're we're going to try a vacuum extraction. And I think they didn't realize she didn't have an epidural and they cut Mm -hmm. an episiotomy and the howl that came from my client and the shock from her husband was because they, they, there was an assumption that she was medicated and they, you know, there was the idea like, we have to get this vacuum, like the little cap in. And so in situations like I guess in obstetrics, things can happen quickly. So how how do you slow down to have that consent? Is there a blurry line of, okay, we need to move. We don't have time for discussion. Talk to me about scenarios like that situation. Something that concerns me is that anytime I talk to someone who did not plan to have a cesarean but ended up having one, they say to me, not, I had an unplanned cesarean, but I had an emergency C-section. And 
there is no possible way as someone who knows birth in and out, I can say that there's no possible way that all of these people had true emergency C-sections. So there is something to be said for the fact that providers can allow their biases to come into play when they are discussing scenarios with, um, with their clients, their patients. And, um, one of them might be in which they say something like, you know, roll over. I need to do an exam. Your baby's heart rate is dropping. Did that need to be a command? No. I have had many scenarios in which I have been concerned about a baby and felt that a useful um, tool in that moment would be a cervical exam so that I could check to see what her dilation is uh, and also um, see if I could stimulate the baby's heart rate by tickling their scalp. And I can say, you know friend, whatever their name is, I, I am concerned about your baby right now. I think it would be best if I did a cervical exam. Are you ready? Can you, do you consent? And in that scenario, it takes as long, but if you have built a relationship of trust with that person, with that patient, then they are going to be much more likely to respond quickly, yes, I consent, go ahead, because they trust you. But the thing is that consent is paramount. And I say this not to the pregnant people or the postpartum people who are listening to this, but to the providers who might be listening, consent is paramount, and you don't have an option to avoid it. Um, we oftentimes will say things like, yeah, well, I just didn't have time because of X emergency. And that's not true. You always have 10 seconds to ask for consent. Um, one instance in which I see a lot of people doing things without consent is a shoulder dystocia, which is one of the true scary emergencies of a birth, which is the head is born and then the shoulder the, the top shoulder becomes lodged behind the parent's pubic bone and they're not able to, the, the baby doesn't slide out um, right away. And in that moment, uh, their cord is compressed. So you only have a few minutes for the baby to be born without there being injury or something worse. Um, and, you know, that scares parents, that scares providers. And so... I know that people react in that moment only out of deep compassion for that baby, but they do so without getting consent from the parent first, oftentimes. Um, and all it takes is saying, you know, I am concerned. This is the scenario. I need you to stop pushing right now. I, I would be able to have more space to get your baby out if I cut an episiotomy. May I do that? And pretty much anyone in that scenario 
is going to say, yes, of course, get my baby out. My baby's in danger. Cut an episiotomy. But if they care enough, that they would prefer that you not cut an episiotomy, even in the scenario in which you're saying, this is going to make a huge difference in getting your baby out safely, then they care enough for that. And that is their prerogative. Um, episiotomy, I'll say also, just for anybody, any providers listening, is not necessary for an uh, and a shoulder dystocia. There's plenty of space to get a baby out without cutting an episiotomy. But in some scenarios, I'm sure it's possible that it would make a difference. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was actually something on one of your posts, and I'm gonna, I wrote it because I knew I wouldn't do it justice. You mentioned, as a provider, I occasionally find myself frustrated or offended when a patient doubts my intentions, but I recognize the importance of patients voicing their needs and reminding me to step out of my role as a hospital employee and into my role as a birth keeper. So can you, that really, really struck me. It has such sincerity and honesty about kind of having to check yourself and be like, wait a minute, where's, where's my focus? Where's, who am I serving? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, I think it's a trap that a lot of midwives and doulas, uh, although in a very different way, um, can find themselves falling into because it is, you know, we are, we consider ourselves to be deeply passionate advocates for pregnant people. Um, and we think, you know, of course I want the best for my client. Of course, I'm only going to do what I know is right for them, but they don't necessarily know that. And also maybe I don't know what is right for them. Um, so, I know that I have fallen prey to this trap and I, I have grumbled to my midwifery partners, like what on earth does this person think? You know, of course I'm only going to do X, Y, Z if it's medically necessary or, you know, I don't understand why they're so defensive. I'm, I'm just trying to do what I know is best. And the thing is that while I know what's best for the average person in this, you know, who is pregnant, who is birthing, I don't know what is right for this person. And it's hard as a provider. If I think I know what is the safest next best step, it's really hard for me to respect that uh, that even though it's not what I would have chosen, they have just as much right to decide to do whatever um, next step as I have the right to make a decision for myself. Um, and it's just, you know, sometimes I write these things uh, on social media sort of like I'm making these promises aloud to myself, um, as a reminder. And I, and I hope that other providers can also learn from, 
from this and make the commitment to really valuing choice and, and trusting the intuition of a, of a birthing parent. Cause that, what, that, what you wrote really spoke to me because it just was so honest that you do come with certain knowledge and it can be frustrated, but you're right. Who are we to tell this person what to do with their bodies? So that one, that one really, really was important to me. So I know you recently left working in a hospital and moved to your own home birth practice. What were some of the reasons for that big shift? And congratulations on that big shift. Of It's a big deal opening your own home birth midwifery practice. Yes, thank you. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. Um, <laughs> and I'm so excited to be doing it. I, you know... It's, I, I love birth. I love birth so much. And I found myself getting to a point at which I was not as joyous about birth as I had been. And I really was sad about that. I wanted to be able to be excited each time I got a call in the middle of the night instead of grumbling and saying, you know, of course it had to be tonight, the one night that I had something scheduled. Um, and I tried to figure out what the root of that was. And I think it was a couple different things. One was that I really was frustrated that I wasn't able to make the decisions that I thought were best for my clients and that they told me would have been best for them, um, in the hospital. And that's not to say that the hospital is a bad place and no one should birth there. It's a really amazing intervention to have. Um, hospital care is fantastic and saves many parents and babies. Um, but it's just not an intervention that everyone needs. And being at home allows us to respect the healthy, normal of physiologic birth. Um, a lot of the times when I was working at the hospital, I would say to people, you know, I consider myself to be like a, a birth bouncer. I'm standing in the doorway of the room, navigating what's going on outside of the room and what's going on inside of the room. I'm the midwife to the patient and the midwife to the system. Um, and I think, I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I might choose to do something like a cervical exam um, when I know it's not necessary, if I know that that's going to soothe the system in the least invasive way possible for my client. And, you know, I was just a little bit tired of having to do that dance, Um being at home allows me to really respect the priorities and desires and needs of my clients um, without having to take into consideration the priorities and needs and desires of a hospital system. Do you feel that there'll be a sense of kind of the elephant off your back, especially when I think of scheduling, things like how long someone can be in labor for. I, I've said this on my podcast for a while that had I been in a hospital, I am quite sure from my first, they would have said failure to progress and C-section, even though 
uh, he came up vaginally. My pelvic floor was slightly trashed from it, but he came up vaginally. And it's at my, it's my midwife said, you know, it was just, it was slow, but there's progress. It's just, you know, slow and steady. And yeah. that, and I never felt pressure. And I mean, I felt like I wanted it to be over, but I never felt like, uh, you know, because it was days, but I, in my heart rate was fine. My blood pressure was fine. Baby's heart was fine. And that was the problem being a doula knowing about this. I'm like, what's his heart rate? Mm. <laughs> what's my blood pressure? <laughs> but I knew had I been in more of a institutional situation, there would have been pressure. All right, get the pit going, even though things were progressing. Do you feel like that is one of the freedoms you were looking for or that, or you never really took that in consideration? That's absolutely one of the, the freedoms is knowing that not only do I not have to make a baby come out. Um, I also can wait to intervene at all. So sometimes in the hospital, I was finding myself intervening, offering uh, cervical sweeps or other things like that to get someone into labor sooner rather than later, because I knew that eventually they would have to be induced and that was not something they wanted. You know, these are all ways in which I just can wait a little bit longer and be a little bit more peaceful with the process of birth. Um, and the beauty of being a, a midwife in the way that I am is that I also have the ability to then um, support my clients through increasing the amount of intervention necessary. So it's not like I now that I'm at home, I have to be completely hands-off. I am very lucky to be able to do the kind of care that is truly a uh, full spectrum and in, in my opinion and I am able to to help them through whatever step they need while still you know I guess like I said before not taking into consideration the needs of the system mm. Such good information. All right, we're going to take another break. When we come back, now you've been doing this for a while. You've worked with new and expectant parents. If you can offer one tip or piece of advice for new and expectant parents, we'll be right back. All right, so what would you like to offer? You have so much knowledge from such a such a vast career. What what would you like to share? Oh, this is rough. I, there's so many things. Um, take some kind of childbirth ed, just do it. I, you know, really, unless you've given birth before, really, I strongly encourage, uh, expecting parents to, to take some kind of childbirth ed. You learn so much about birth and you learn about what's normal so that you're able to really prepare your expectations People are shocked all the time when I tell them that the water breaking is not an emergency and you don't need to rush to the hospital because that's what they see on TV. And being able to to know what is healthy and safe and normal makes a really big difference when you are the one in labor. 
That's so funny you said the water breaking because I teach a lot of private childbirth ed and usually it's the, there is this preconceived idea of water breaks. Oh my God. And when I tell people, I'm like, only about 10% of people have the water break before the onset of labor. They're shocked. You know, so what, <laughs> what we learn from TV yeah. may not always be the most accurate <laughs> portrayal of birth. Yeah. And I, I'm going to get behind that. I say 100%. The more you learn, if you don't, if you don't know your options, you don't have the options. So yes, take the childbirth class. All right. So where can people find you and your work? Uh, all over, all over the place. Um, I have a blog that has not been updated in a long time. It was a question and answer blog. that has a lot of information about reproductive health of all kinds, abortion, pregnancy, uh, you know, yeast infections, all kinds of, um, vagina, uterus, ovary health, um, and also things like relationship advice. That is at themidwifeisin.com. Um, then my current website, which is for my practice, is cosmosmidwifery.com. And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Midwife Is In. Wonderful. I will make sure all of that is on your show notes. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed chatting with you and your honesty and your great advice and your support for pregnant and new folks and new parents. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right. Be well. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.